following sermon is from Faith Bible Church, located in Murrieta, California. More information about Faith Bible Church is available at www.faith-bible.net. Well, good morning and welcome to Faith Bible Church. My name is Sean Farrell. I'm the college pastor here at FBC. Are there any college students up this early? Okay, we got a few. That's fantastic. Um, As was mentioned just a few minutes ago, if you haven't heard, our teaching pastor, Chris Mueller, has been down and out with COVID, but uh, he's been sending us daily updates. He is very much on the mend, and uh, we are expecting him and Gene to be back with us this next Sunday. So keep praying for them um, as they are very sad to not be here, but are taking every precaution necessary Uh, We miss you, Chris and Jean. Come back soon. Uh, I want to say, too, congrats to Jesse and Brooke and Nick and Nicole. uh, And only from this perspective, since it's already announced, both of you dudes married up. So congrats on that. Good work. Nice job. Question to start our sermon this morning. Who is the fastest man in the world? This is a hotly contested topic, and it's resolved every four years as we hit the Olympic Games and watch the 100-meter finals. But here in 2020, as with so many other things, the Olympics were canceled. So who is the fastest man? I heard it already. Some would claim the Jamaican sprinter Usain Bolt. He's become a household name as he has some eight gold medals. And uh, he is the only sprinter to win the 100, the 200, and three consecutive Olympic Games. He's also won the four by one twice. He currently has world records in all three events. Not bad. How is this man so fast? It's a combination of training, technique, and genetics. Really in simple terms, his feet, his stride moves at the same pace as the other runners, but he's six foot five, and so with every single step he takes, he gains ground and outpaces the men around him. But I submit to you today that Usain Bolt is not the world's fastest man. Nope. Chris Anderson is. Chris Anderson (laughs) runs every year at the annual Cooper's Hill Cheese Rolling Classic in Gloucester, England. Each year, for generations now, contestants line up at the top of Cooper's Hill a massive hill that has more than a 45-degree pitch, and they chase a wheel of cheese that rolls down the hill. They stumble, they fall, they cartwheel somersaults over and over. They get back up and continue their way down this treacherous hill. The race has been summarized as, quote, 20 young men chasing a cheese off a cliff and tumbling to the bottom where they are scraped up by paramedics and packed off to the hospital, end quote. Scrapes, bruises, sprained ankles, and the occasional concussion. But the winner is the first to the bottom and receives as their prize a seven-pound wheel of cheese, the very same wheel of cheese they were chasing, as well as world's fastest man title. Chris Anderson has finished the race in less than nine seconds. Usain Bolt, eight, he's 9.58, is that right? Thank you. Um, 
fact check. Yep, that's true. Chris Anderson has done it faster. Of course, he did it on a 45-degree tilt, was out of control most of the time, um, and yet is the world's fastest man. For more information on this race, you can check out the Netflix show, We Are the Champions, which I stumbled upon at 4 o'clock in the morning two Saturdays ago, um, that details the cheese racing contest. We all know what it's like to run in a race. We all understand that there's a starting line, there is a finish line, and there is a prize. There is discipline, sacrifice, and focus needed to accomplish the goal. All along the way, there are obstacles that get in our way and try to slow us down. None as crazy as the Cooper's Hill cheese rolling classic, but certainly we all remember standing on the line with everybody else in our class in elementary school waiting for the teacher to say go. Some have raced competitively in high school, college. Some, like Andrew Lewis, have raced cars. Others have ridden bicycles. Some have even stood in the front yard with their grandkids to race around the yard. But we all understand the concept. And this is one of many metaphors used by the authors of the New Testament to describe the Christian life. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9.24 that in, in an effort to win the incorruptible crown, he, quote, runs in such a way that he may win. In Philippians 2.16, he says that he did not want to run in vain. In 2 Timothy 4.7, at the very end of his life, looking back, he said, I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. But there is no clearer picture of the race, of this metaphor for the Christian life, than what is found in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. So go ahead and open your Bibles there, Hebrews 12, verses 1 through 3. We'll start our time by reading the text together. No doubt you'll recognize these verses as they are very memorable and very helpful to us in our Christian lives. The author there says, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. If you are a Christian, then you are right now running a race. Today, this morning, you are in the middle of your race. There is discipline, there is sacrifice, there is focus needed to accomplish the goal. There is a starting line, a finish line, and there is a prize. All along the way, there are obstacles that distract you from accomplishing your goal. How is your race going? Are you this morning 
running hard after Christ? Are you expending maximum effort? Are you even aware that you're in the race? For some, the pace is fast and grueling and you're moving at a good clip. The wind is rushing through your hair and Christ this morning has your heart. Praise God, keep running. For others, the pace is slow, weighed down by the distractions of this world or held back by the sin in your life. For others, you have forgotten altogether that you're even in a race and you aren't running at all right now. How are you doing in your race? I picked this text mostly from my own heart. I need to be reminded that I'm in a race. Maybe like me, complacency and sin has crept into your soul. Forgetful, distracted, preoccupied by the busyness of life, your efforts have decreased and the goal is not firmly fixed in your mind. The writer of Hebrews, knowing our tendency to drift, gives us these three verses to get us back into the race. And he helps us with reasons why. Reasons why it's difficult to run, but also reasons why we should keep running. This is, in effect, a divine motivational call. Like Pat said, this is, let's go. This is scripture and the spirit of God calling us out of lethargy back into running a race. The motivation, in a nutshell, where this passage is going, life is tough, but you are in a race. Life is tough, and when you take your eyes off of Christ, you will struggle. If we put it all together, we must fix our attention, our focus, our very lives on the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the key to running and to running effectively. And may the Lord use this text and our time in the word this morning to drive us onward in our pursuit of Jesus Christ. Our outline today has three very simple points. Uh, They are in the race motif, on your mark, get set, and go. Let's look at point number one, on your mark. And we're going to spend the majority of our time here, so don't despair, (laughs) but buckle up. Look at that first phrase in verse one. The author begins by saying, therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us. The therefore pushes us back to chapter 11. Really, there should not be a chapter break here. This is the continuation of what was happening in the previous chapter. It is the famous chapter on faith, often referred to as the hall of faith, where the author is recounting the lives of faith lived by Old Testament saints. And we don't have time to go back and read the entire chapter, but as we enter into the stadium to run, we find very quickly that our race is not the first race of the day. Others have run before us, living lives of faith and dependence on God. They have already crossed the finish line. Men like Moses and Joseph and David, women like Sarah and Rahab have already triumphed through their faith. And here we can sit and think, well, of course they did. 
They're the Old Testament heroes. Like I read about them since the time I was in Sunday school about David and his sling going to town against Goliath. We, we know these stories. Moses putting a staff in the water and it's splitting. Of course they triumphed. But you have to understand, they're not a different caliber of individual. It's not even close, okay? They are just like you and me. The point the author's making in chapter 11 is that these men and women did not accomplish great things because they were great people. God took normal people and he did much through them because of their faith. Think about this. And just, I'm just giving you context. Moses was a stuttering murderer. David was an adulterer. Sarah was a doubter. Abraham was a liar. Rahab was a prostitute. It's not a list of perfect people. It's not a list of heroes. It's a list of fallen sinners like you and like me who put their trust in God and watched him do amazing things. And so as we come into the stadium, the idea is not that this great cloud of witnesses, these people who've already gone before us and already run, it's not that they're gathered around us, as it were, cheering us on. That's not the idea here of this. They're not in heaven looking down saying, go get them. Their attention is fixed on Christ. Rather, listen carefully, their lives are a witness to us. This this surrounding cloud of witnesses testifies to us. We walk down the same path. We live in the same fallen world. We share the same sinful tendencies and watch, we run the same race that they ran. The reality is that men and women have been running the same race for thousands of years. We can look all the way back to the Old Testament or you can look back four weeks when we watch Shannon and Danielle Hurley walk through here, who are running a race. People in the stands right now are running the same race. There is no promise that it will be easy. There is no promise that the race will be downhill with the wind at your back. On the contrary, we in our lives are confronted with trials and difficulties on a daily basis. I don't know what it is for you today, whether it's a health concern or a conflict at work, a family issue, the losing of a loved one, the list goes on. But the encouragement in this great cloud of witnesses is simply that you are not the only person running. Others have run and finished well, and so can you as you seek to give yourself to the Lord. Watch this and trust his plan for your life. That's mostly context. It brings us to the second half of verse 1 as the writer turns his attention to those who are now running. Let us do this. Let us do that. You'll see the plural here. It's coming to us today. Those who are in the race right now, instruction for us. Look at the second half of verse 1. Let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. Now in any race... As you enter the stadium and look around, the crowd's gathered, you come to the blocks. And the first thing that you hear from the announcer is, on your mark. And this is the indication the race is about to start as the athletes are called to the line. Our instruction here in the text is that we are to lay aside those things that we don't need to run, the things that prevent us from running well. 
The Greek here is to put them off, to cease from doing them, even to undress. Now, there's two different categories as you approach the blocks of things that you're going to discard in an effort to be ready to run. The first are things that distract, and the second are things that destroy. Look, look here in the text. He says, first, we are to lay aside every encumbrance. Now, that's a big word, but an encumbrance basically is a hindrance or an impediment. Those are two other big words. Literally, here's easier. Lay aside everything that is bulky, everything that is heavy, that kind of gets in your way. For a runner, this would be take off your sweatshirt, take off the, the baggy jeans or the baggy pants, the sweats, get your boots off, take off the backpack. These are items that no athlete would ever wear in a race. In the Christian life, in the metaphor that given here, this is anything that distracts you. While these things are not sinful in, them, in, in, excuse me, in themselves, they are things that can slow us down if not kept in their proper place. Here are some encumbrances. Are you ready for this list? Might be shocking. Your family, your kids, your hobbies, your job, your house, your social media, your sports, and even your ministry. What are the things that weigh you down? Things that distract you. Things that not wrong in themselves, but they can pull you uh, in the wrong direction or even weigh you down. Is it maybe picking up that overtime shift? Is it hanging out with certain friends? Is it choosing to stay up late on Saturday night? Is it talk radio? Podcasts? Netflix? We could take these as an example. Our iPhones and for Brandy, her Galaxy, um, not sinful by themselves. Such a helpful device, isn't it? Tells you the weather, right? It's so nice out today. Tells you about the news, gives you directions, gives you stock market indications, games, take pictures, social media, music, calendar, email, to-do list, banking, texting, and watch this, even the ability to make phone calls, Okay? So awesome. But these devices can distract us. Nothing wrong in themselves, but we spend a lot of time looking down. I was in a restaurant last night, and I just looked around as people were waiting for their food, and every single head was down on their phone. Everybody. And it's normal for all of us, right? We get absorbed in it. Uh, maybe this might help. You wake up in the morning, and instead of going to Scripture... Instead of going to prayer, you pick up that device, turn it on, and you want to find out what you missed in the last six to eight hours. Because stuff has changed, right? And so immediately you're going checking email, checking text messages, scrolling through your Instagram feed. You got to know what you missed during the night. For me to make this personal, this is setting my phone down on the table during dinner, only to pick it up multiple times and answer text messages still related to the workday, instead of paying proper attention to my family. I, I think these encumbrances are not sinful in themselves, like this phone is not sinful in itself, but these are things that can slow us down and keep us from running all out after Christ. 
Now, just outside of Waikiki, there's a place called Cocoa Head Crater. And uh, this is a, this giant crater that's just, if you, anyway, it doesn't really matter where it is. But um, during World War II, the, the U.S. military built bunkers at the top of this little mountain. And uh, they built a railroad track that goes right, cuts right straight up the side of the mountain. And there are railroad ties going across it all the way up. And they used to haul all their cargo up. It's a really steep hill. You can't, the train couldn't go up there. So they would have a, a wench that pulled it, all their cargo up to the top. Um, supported by all these railroad ties, et cetera. Well, it hasn't been used in over 50 years, um, but the 1,048 railroad ties are now used as stairs, and it's now used as a brutal workout to climb up these stairs to the top of this mountain. And I've been to Hawaii multiple times traveling there on business, and I've done Cocoa Head on a number of occasions. I don't know why I enjoy it, but there's something within me that loves to get to the top because once you get up there, you have almost a 360 degree view of the entire, of the ocean, of Waikiki, Diamond Head, all that's out there, Hanama Bay, it's absolutely gorgeous. Look at this, I got some pictures right here. That's, no I'm kidding. Uh, what's amazing about this, for me, it, it is just everything I have to get to the top. And I am routinely passed by people who are wearing weight vests or have oxygen-restricting masks on. Or the one guy I saw that had figured out this contraption to make a sparklets bottle, five-gallon bottle of water full of water as a backpack and was just walking up the hill. Excuse me, and I'm moving to the side as he's passing me. It's kind of embarrassing. But I think it's a pretty good illustration of Christian life. It's hard enough on its own why would we carry all of this additional weight? How, how can you run? How can you pursue Christ when you're bogged down with unnecessary distraction? So my challenge to you is to consider what these things are in your life, to identify them, and as the author says here, to lay them aside. Simple practical tips, set limits on your TV watching. Delete, yes, delete certain apps from your phone. Take real steps so that you're not slowed down in your race. Now, there's another category, not just things that distract, but there are also things, secondly, that destroy. Too often the things that distract are just a gateway to things that seek to destroy us. And the author not only warns us about encumbrances, but verse 1 says... Lay aside, not just encumbrances, but look back at your Bibles. Lay aside the sin which so easily entangles us. Now, sin is um, anything contrary to the will and law of God. And according to this text, sin, look back at your Bibles, seeks to entangle us. That is to say, it exerts control or easily um, trips us up. Sin encircles us. It baits us, traps us, and causes us to forget that we're even in a race. Now, a few years ago, my brother-in-law had come over on this same Thanksgiving weekend, uh, to, and we were celebrating Thanksgiving, but we went to put up our Christmas lights, well, my Christmas lights, and he was in my garage and opened a bin of lights, and... Uh, <laughs> Uh, I heard shrieking from the other side of the garage as something ran up his arm out of the box and dropped off the backside and disappeared back into the recesses of my garage. 
he came running over to me to explain that this rat with beady eyes and this massive tail, this was just a disaster and he was freaking out uh, in some ways. It turned out to be just a small field mouse. He was a little guy, they're so cute, the little field mice. Um, and along with its family, it had sought winter refuge in my house. Well, this is not okay because you need to pay rent if you're going to live in the feral house. And uh, at the same time, having two daughters, I didn't feel right about putting traditional mouse traps out. And so instead, I purchased a handful of the little teeter-totter traps. Have you seen these? They're, they're like little tubes that are teeter-totter. And on one side, the trap door sits up like this, and you put some peanut butter or something in the back of it. And the, the mouse walks around and climbs into one side. And as soon as it gets its body over that teeter-totter, the fulcrum, the whole thing goes like this bends down, and the trap door closes behind it, and it's just stuck there. It can't turn around. It's just stuck. So I put these out, and with the, within the catch them alive, right? That's, that's helpful. Within one hour, I caught 12 mice. Yeah, yeah, it's a big family of mice living in the garage without paying their rent. <laughs> Instituting Daddy's Catch and Release Program, which incidentally has saved the lives of many birds, frogs, and snakes, other wildlife that's wandered into my yard unwittingly, we took these 12, mites out, these 12 mice out to a nearby field and released them. Feeling good about my humanitarian efforts, we returned home. Mission accomplished. Until that night, I heard more scurrying coming from the garage. There was still one more mouse, too fat and chubby to fit into the little trap. This guy was not going to be taken care of by a humane trap. Frustrated, I went out and bought a glue trap which is just a little pad covered with like thick gelatinous glue and you set it against the wall where the mice or rats are running and they get stuck in it. And so I put that there and I walked away. Came back a couple hours later and the, the mouse was sure enough on that trap, all four feet were stuck down. Um, too scared to get any closer, I went back into the house and because uh, it was trying to get out. Uh, I came back a few hours after that and this poor little thing was now entire body matted down, stuck on this tail on there. Everything down to its head was stuck on the glue. It could not move at all. That is the picture of sin. The mouse was entangled, completely encircled. The prognosis was not good. I put it out. It's misery to end the story. We are not much different. According to this verse, there is a sin that so easily entangles us that we're walking along our normal pathway of life and we get trapped in it. We get encircled by it. We get entangled in it. Notice back in your Bibles, look down there. It says the sin that so easily entangles us. Notice that the word sin is singular. Notice also the definite article. This is the sin. And there's different ways to interpret this. I'm going to interpret it this way. This is that sin, that singular sin, the one for you that trips you up, the one sin that holds you back, the sin that you fall into so routinely and so easily in your life, the sin that you confessed when you first gave your life to Christ in the same sin that you still confess at every communion today. It is, verse 1, the one that so easily entangles us. The Puritans call it, called it a bosom sin or a darling sin. We call it today our besetting sin. It is that sin which, like Goliath, towers in front of you, blocking the light of the sun, holding you back, and even threatening to destroy you. You know it well. Your mind is fixed on it right now. Like an Achilles heel, this sin holds you back from pursuing Christ. It brings shame 
guilt, and even regret. And we are so prone to give into it. But friend, this is no pity party. We are not victims. We are not stuck without a solution. We are told here to lay it aside, to throw it down, to be done with it, not to entertain it or to play with it or to be affectionate towards it, not to allow any foothold of it in our hearts. We are to be aware of it, we are to know it, and we are to treat it as a trap that once it has a hold on us, will continue to tighten further and further seeking to destroy us and completely ensnare us. Over and over again in the New Testament, the writers of Scripture give us instruction on what to do with sin, like in Romans 13, 13, where it says, let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy. Put all these fleshly desires aside, and it says there in verse 14, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. Sin mastered Cain. Go back and read um, Genesis 4, you'll see that term. Sin cost Esau his inheritance. It cost Samson his eyes, Achan his life. It turned Solomon's heart from God, turned David into an adulterer, caused Demas in 2 Timothy 4 to love this present world and to depart. It cannot be trifled with. It must not be entertained. Sin seeks to destroy you. Which is why John Owen the Puritan said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. And so if you were to run the race of faith, you must lay aside those things that distract and you must lay aside those things that seek to destroy you. Moving on in this text, if point number one was on your mark, point number two is get set. Now this is the part of the race where your feet are in the blocks, your fingers are up on the line, you come up off your knees to prepare to run. You set your mind on that one singular goal, and before the gun goes off, you take one final look straight down the track towards the finish line. Look at verse 2. It says, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. If we are to run our race effectively, we must, according to this verse, very simply fix our eyes on Jesus. The Greek has the idea of very simply looking away from everything else. Jesus is our only prize, our only goal, and our ambition. Colossians 1.18 says that Christ is to have first place in everything. We are, as it as it were, to put blinders on our eyes so that we can't even see these distracting things in the world and we focus straight only on the goal, which is Christ. In this moment, in the next moment, and in the moment after, and in every moment that we encounter in our lives, we are to turn from sin and turn toward Christ. He is to fill our hearts. He is to fill our minds. He is to be all to us. And when we find that he is not all, when some sin is holding sway in our heart, then we are to sing along with the songwriter who said, turn your eyes upon Jesus and look full in his wonderful face and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and his grace. 
this is not, uh, what's the right phrase here? This is very simple. It is very simple instruction. It is not easy. Turning from those sins that are so easy for us and turning towards Christ, very difficult. But we're given the motivation for why. Look in verse 2. It says that Jesus is both the author and the perfecter of our faith. He was there at the beginning, right, when we were saved. He brought us into the family of God. He will be there at the end, taking us across the cold river of death into his eternal home. His eternal home, excuse me. The text tells us that Jesus ran his own race. Okay, he kept the course in verse two. He endured the cross. He despised the shame. He has now sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Think about this. Even in the worst kind of humili- humiliating death, he did not get distracted. He did not turn aside. He did not fail. One commentator said that on the cross, Jesus plumbed the furthest depths of human shame. That is to say that on the cross, Jesus endured the worst form of humiliation. He did not let the suffering of Christ, however, deter him from his goal. Why did he do it? Verse 12, or excuse me, verse 2 says, for the joy set before him. He saw the prize, he saw the reward, and therefore he endured. His prize, his completing of his mission to save sinners, to accomplish the will of his Father, ultimately seated him, verse 2, at the right hand of the throne of God. Here's the simple reality. Jesus ran and he ran perfectly. He never failed, he never faltered, he kept his eyes on, no matter what the cost, he kept running until he crossed that finish line. He did it not because of the shame, it says he despised the shame. He thought little of the shame, the Greek says. He did it because he had his eyes fixed on the joy set before him. He had his eyes fixed on the reward. He looked like Moses in chapter 11 said, the passing pleasures of of Egypt and this world or the reproach of Christ. And he said, I'm not looking to this kingdom and this world. My kingdom is not of this world. He's looking to that future day. Jesus put his eyes on the prize and ran. The motivation for us is the same, to see the model of Jesus and also to run. He is at the right hand of God where he rules and reigns as the conquering hero. But that's not it. He's just not there in as, as a hero sitting there at that throne, Hebrews 4 calls it the throne of grace. It is there that our great high priest intercedes for us. It is there that he offers mercy and help in time of need. When we falter and trip and fall and we reach out saying we need help, we need forgiveness, it is this same mediator, this same one at the right hand of the Father already having run who reaches down a hand to help us, to give aid, to encourage, to remind us that no matter how shameful our sin, no matter how much guilt we feel, his grace goes deeper than our deepest sin. Jesus is the ultimate model. He finished the race, and now we're called to fix our eyes on him as we run. Friend, the motivation for the Christian life is not out of duty and obligation. If you continue to think the Bible is full of don't do this, and don't do this, and don't do this, and be better, it's a moral lesson, you're missing the point. The Christian life is about looking at the greater glory and person of Christ. And because of what he's done, washing away our sin, taking that humiliation and shame, enduring the cross for us, we now respond out of love. Watch, and out of gratitude. 
We run the race now because Jesus ran, and we don't have to run. I don't have to say no to sin. This is so boring. My friends do this. I can't. That's not the point. The point is, is that we respond in obedience out of love and affection for Jesus Christ. Extinguish the passion of sin by fixing your eyes on the person and work of Jesus Christ. Struggling with sin today? Guaranteed you're more in love with your sin. Your eyes are fixed there. Fix your eyes on Jesus and watch as the things of earth grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. All right, that takes us to point number three. On your mark, get set. Point number three, go. It says there in verse, the end of verse one, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. The gun goes off and we need to run. Coming up out of the blocks with maximum effort, straining every fiber. This, my friends, is a race and you don't win by taking it easy. You don't win when you're distracted. As the semester winds down and the holidays are upon us and we're thinking it's time to get with the family and relax, have you forgotten that right now you're in a race and it requires maximum effort? We are called to run. We have been given instruction. We are called, verse 1, look there again, to run. Look at the, the modifier, with endurance. The Greek is to remain under a burden. We are to run even with the burdens of life that we're carrying. We are to stay in this race. It's not easy because we all have headwinds that desire to hold us back. But we are called to run with endurance. Notice it says in verse 1, the race that is set before us. I just want to pull something out of this. The race is different for each one of us. The race that is set before us, the race that is set before you, and the race that is set before you, and the race that is set before you, and the race that is set before me, the race is different. Some are dealing with physical ailments that make it difficult to run. Some have incredible financial burdens that make it difficult to run. Some have financial uh, excuse me, family and relational issues. Some are in different seasons of life. The course that is set for you by the divine sovereignty and providence of God is different from the course that is set for the person sitting next to you. And yet you, Christian, are called to run. Yes, you have unique challenges, things only you face, but God has called you to run. And he's promised in 1 Corinthians 10, 13 that no temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. Even though it's different, these are normal temptations. He says, and God is faithful, and he will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also so that you will be able to endure it. This is the name of the game, endurance. The Christian life isn't a sprint. The Christian life isn't a marathon. The Christian life is a sprinting marathon. 
endurance. We are called to run as hard as we can, as long as we can. Run hard for 80 years. If you're pushing 80, run hard for 90 years. Run hard for 40 years. Run hard for 20 years. However long God gives you, Jesus says work and run while it is still day because night is coming where no man can work. This is the one life, the one God-given opportunity that you have to store up for yourself treasure in heaven, to invest your time not in the passing pleasures of this world, but in the promises God has given, thinking to the eternal reward, not to today. My father was a world-class athlete, ran in two different Olympics, has a bronze medal, even had a world record for a while, ran the 800, um, and often speaks of his experiences running, really amazing stories, um, thinking about him being one of the best in the world. Uh, he, he would talk about getting boxed in, running the 800, and, and as guys are running close, getting spiked or kicked in the, in the shins, things like that. Um, one day, he was run, uh, playing basketball when he wasn't supposed to, in college, stepped off of a curb and severely sprained his ankle and was too scared to tell his coach, so he just taped it up and just kept running and said the swelling didn't go down for over a year. And he just kept running and kept running and kept running. And he used to talk about through pain, through difficulty, through challenges, regardless of whether they're different than the people around you, you keep running with endurance, with one singular focus. I remember being that kid lining up. I'm not very fast, by the way, okay? But I remember being that kid lining up in elementary school, and he would tell me, now, when you run, you put your eyes on that line, and you don't look to the left or the right. It doesn't matter where anybody else is. You fix your eyes on the goal, and you push all the way till you get across that line. The runner visualizes every part of the race, knows every term, and has the goal firmly in mind and doesn't deviate. There is one goal, and you, Christian, are called to run until you cross that finish line, until you meet Christ face to face. And it's hard, and we stumble, and we fall, and we get distracted, and sometimes we even find ourselves wandering off the track aimlessly. That happens to me in the supermarket when I'm like, look at this. They got these in mesquite flavor now. Oh, I wonder what they make that out of. Mosquitoes? No, that's... That's for some, only for a couple of you. We wander. We rebelliously go in the wrong direction sometimes. So how do we get back on track if we are apathetic or off course? Look at verse 3. It says, for consider him. Wow. It's the first command in these verses. Consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself. Consider the one who was tortured and killed on our behalf. Think on him. Meditate on him. Fix him firmly in your mind. Why? The work and the, the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Why? Look at verse 3. So that you will not grow weary and lose heart. My friend, it's so easy for us to get distracted, to burn out, to have lack of desire. If you're a little dry this morning, if the tank is on empty, then consider him. 
Verse 2, fix your eyes on him. Verse 3, consider, think deeply about him, meditate on him, let him fill your every waking thought and watch as your sin dissipates in the background as you see the greatness of Christ and come back to him. This is really simple, but it's not easy. (coughs) We are to run the race that is set before us with endurance. Now, I'm going to be done, but I want to leave you with just a couple of specific applications. I want you on your sheets to write a couple of things out, and you can write in code, okay, so nobody around you knows what you're writing, all right? So that's fine, just as long as you know. I want you to write out one encumbrance that holds you back. I'm going to give you a couple seconds to do this. Write it out. One encumbrance that holds you back. I told you about mine. It's right here. Why don't don't you write one for yourself? And then I also want you to write out the sin. The sin that so easily entangles you. I want you to put it in black and white, even if it's in code, because you need to, to know what that sin is, and you need to know you're going to war with it today. And I want you to think through and write through, this is for application, what steps you will take to set those things aside, okay? What are you going to do today? Are you going to do this week to put your eyes back on Christ and to run? I want you to write out one more thing. Write out what steps you will take this week to set your mind on Christ. Go ahead, put something down there. This is for you to commit to the Lord, what you are going to do. You're going to meditate on a verse. You're going to pick up a book on the attributes of God. Uh, Are are you going to listen to a sermon? What what are you going to do to set your eyes and fix them on Christ? Put this down so you can walk away from this text, not as hearers of the word, but as doers also. Praise God that in our failing, our great high priest speaks for us and issues us right back into the race and we can run for his glory. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning and for this time in your word. We thank you that you have placed us in a race, that we get to run not for ourselves, but for the Lord Jesus Christ. Would you, Lord, help us as we seek to run not for ourselves, but for you? Father, forgive us for the so many areas where we have fallen and failed. Forgive us for being distracted and even apathetic. Lord, we recognize that we are quick to fail, and yet you are quick to forgive. Thank you for that great truth and that reality. We ask that you would help us that you would motivate us and that you would give us eyes that are fixed on Jesus Christ. As we sing now, would you be glorified in Christ's name, amen. Thanks for listening today. Sermon audio from the last three years is available by podcast and a larger archive from Chris Mueller and Faith Bible Church can be found at media.faith-bible.net. And if you would, please leave us a review on iTunes. It helps a lot. Thanks, and have a great day.